I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, this morning. And uh, we're going to be continuing our series through uh, Paul's uh, treatment of 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 through 14. If you remember in these chapters, Paul is answering some questions about spiritual gifts. Uh, as he does that, I believe that the Corinthians asked Paul some questions about which spiritual gifts were the most significant in the church. And so Paul gives them three chapters of information to help them answer that question. Uh, as he answers the question in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he starts by first giving a theology of spiritual gifts. We've been working our way through chapter 12 and this section on the theology of the gifts. And uh, we used, uh, in chapter 12, we used verse 7 as a guide for the whole chapter. Verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So Paul's going to give them some information about uh, how the gifts are distributed in the body and how the Spirit reveals these gifts as the source of the gift. But then the, the last part of that verse says, for the common good, he's going to give them some very important information about the purpose of or for spiritual gifts. And it's within that idea or that concept where Paul begins to use a metaphor of the human body to make a profound point or make some profound points with the Corinthian assembly. Last week, we looked at two verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, or chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. And we saw that the metaphor of the body is to capture the profound or deep unity that believers share together. It's all one. And the way Paul describes this in your Bible in verses 12 and 13, he says that uh, in the Spirit or by the Spirit, we were all dipped or immersed into one body. And then later on in the verse, he says, and we all drank from the same spirit. So he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand that the illustration of, of a body is to indicate a whole or a union that is profound and deep. And, and he, of course, applies that to the different members of the Corinthian church and how they're to be unified. This week, uh, we're going to be looking at 13 verses. Uh, setting a new record here at Colonial Baptist Church. I think it stands for more than my tenure, uh, but perhaps from the very beginning of our existence. 13 verses. And we'll look further at Paul's illustration of the body. Paul takes the illustration in a different direction, verses 14 through 26. He actually gives two paragraphs here, and we're going to look at both of them. In this section, Paul personifies the different gifts or different parts of the body and he has them speaking to each other. It's actually quite an interesting uh, passage if you take the time to stop and think about it. In other words, what Paul does in this section, he gives mouth and lips to uh, the head, the hands, the feet, the eyes, and, and noses. He has them all speaking in different ways or another. I remember when I was a child playing a game called Operation. You remember this game? Okay, so the way the game goes, you have this little set of tweezers. You're supposed to perform an operation. You're supposed to get these little plastic body parts. Remember this? And you're, you're pulling them out of these little metal cavities. And what happens if you make a mistake? Right, yeah, the, the nose lights up. The buzzer goes off. Okay. In, in Paul's illustration here, he has the body parts themselves speaking. 
not only does he have them speaking, he has them amputating themselves or another body part in the church, another member in the church. This is going to be a very interesting metaphor for us to look at. And this personification that Paul gives here allows him to identify two errors that we must avoid in the church. So if you're taking notes, you have a handout, there's a handout in the bulletin you can follow in that way. The first error that Paul illustrates with this metaphor of the body is what I'm going to call the error of the isolationist. The error of the isolationist. In other words, what's going to happen in the first paragraph is Paul will, he will present the material from the perspective of members who degrade the worth of their own gifts and sever themselves from the body. So this is what I call the error of the person who isolates himself, the isolationist, from the body. This section unfolds in two ways. Look, look with me first at the objection of the isolationist in verse 14. Paul says, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I think the objection itself is found in verses 15 and 16. It's found in these twin statements that are marked out with the word if. If you look in your Bible at the beginning of verse 15 and 16, you see the word if. He he imagines two scenarios here. And here he has things being presented from the perspective of the foot and the ear. Here the foot compares itself to the hand and the ear compares itself to the eye. It seems as if both the foot and the ear, for some reason, feel inferior to other parts of the body, uh, perhaps because they lack the intricacies of the other parts of the body. So they object because they're not, that, that since they're not more like the significant parts, they will remove themselves from the body completely. So I'm not like the other part, I'm going to perform a self-amputation lop myself off from the body and sever themselves completely. Robert Thomas explains this well. He said this. He said, no member can accomplish its own removal from the human body by complaining and depreciating its own importance. Each one has responsibility to carry out no matter how inconspicuous it may be. Okay? So, uh, in the first part of this section, uh, Paul's imagining these body parts saying, because I don't compare... I'm not really a part of the body. Now, in this imagined scenario, in these imagined objections, I believe Paul is picturing real objections that church members sometimes make because they don't feel valuable or valued in the body of Jesus Christ. Although it's only been a short time uh, that I've been here at Colonial Baptist Church, I'll say from time to time, some member or members will come to me and explain to me that they're removing themselves or their gifts from some ministry opportunity at Colonial Baptist Church. And uh, I think sometimes that could be wise, right, to temporarily pull back. Perhaps things are 
completely out of control in your life or work or something, you're just overwhelmed. Or it can be wise, perhaps, if you've learned or discerned that your gifts don't really match up well with the ministry opportunity. But other times, the person and the gifts seem to match very well with the service opportunity. I think sometimes we repeat the error of the isolationist, and we do exactly what Paul says not to do in this text. So that's the objection, verses 14 through 16, that leads to Paul's answer in verses 17 through 20. Paul's answer for the isolationist, look in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body and each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul's answers here to church members who would remove themselves because he's not or she's not valuable is to point out that diversity, including all of the gifts in the church, is necessary for the proper function of the church. So you look at verse 17, he asks something like this. He asks, if all you had were eyes, would you even have a body? It's a very interesting picture, right? Just a bunch of eyeballs put together. Is that really even a body? No, it's a monstrosity, right? You would not be able to hear anything, he says. And I can't hear. So you would be limited if all you had were eyes. He also asks in, in the next uh, section there, if, if all you had were ears, would you, would you be able to smell anything? I mean, if you have that ability, you can smell with your ear. Okay, don't, don't raise your hand if you can, because that's freakish, right? That someone would be able to smell with their ear. I mean, Paul's asking some very interesting uh, questions here, and I think that he's pointing out, first of all, that diversity in the body is necessary. At this time of the year, it's, it's fun for me to hear uh, men speak of fantasy football drafts that they've been involved in. Uh, men and, and, and some women like these drafts. Uh, you might not know much about football or about drafts, but I'm going to give you a little bit of advice here. Uh, I think they, they like them, first of all, because it's a good chance to get some good snacks, to talk about sports and demonstrate your profound knowledge of, of football. It enables you to live out your dreams of coaching. Uh, perhaps even envision yourself as one of the players. It, it also, though, one of the values of a good fantasy football draft is it uh, allows you to make fun of people who don't draft well. That's just part of it. That's part of it as I've experienced it. Uh, if, if you've never experienced one of these, I, I give you a little bit of advice. I give three, three mistakes that you must avoid in doing this. Uh, I gave these to my son recently. Uh, three mistakes you must avoid on draft night. First, if you mispronounce the name of the person you are drafting, that's a big problem. Okay? You are going to be relentlessly mocked by every other person in the room. That will probably become your new nickname for the next you know, five, six years or whatever. So, I mean, there have been times when I've been involved in a fantasy football draft where I, I actually didn't even choose someone because I didn't know how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> Let's move on down to the next one. 
Second, if you draft someone who's injured or out for the year, that's a huge problem. Uh, from my experience, if you draft an injured player, you'll be mocked the rest of the year, sometimes inheriting a new nickname related to the injury or the player's name. But finally, if you draft too many players at any one position, other owners will relentlessly mock you as well. So in most football drafts or football teams, fantasy football teams, you have to start like one quarterback. But there's always a person at the fantasy football draft who will, will draft like five different quarterbacks and put them on, on their team. The reason that is a problem is because you don't have diversity. You can't win a game with five quarterbacks and no other players on the team. You actually need someone, if you don't know much about football, you need someone who throws the ball, someone who runs the ball, someone who catches the ball, and someone who kicks the ball. You can't just pick ten kickers because you like kickers and expect to do okay. Or because you were like a really good, you know, soccer player in junior high school or something. You can't, you can't do that. You must have diversity on your team. In the same way, we can't make a church up out of 500 preachers made a church up of 500 preachers, and you had that many pastors or preachers in a church, you probably wouldn't get much of any significance done. I would get more amens than I typically get, I think, on a typical Sunday, but the building would most definitely fall apart. Now, God arranges the gifts, and he chooses differing roles for differing church members. We are not like 700 people singing the same note or playing the exact same part on the same instruments. No, the church is like a full-bodied orchestra with different people playing different instruments and different parts. Or we're like a massive choir singing different notes in different ranges of notes. That's God's design. And we cannot just cut ourselves out of the body if we don't feel valuable. Because this text says every member is valuable to the healthy functioning of the church. And it also says, if you look closely in verse 18, that you have a responsibility to use your gifts in the assembly because God has assigned it in this way. God has made choices and he's distributed gifts, differing gifts to different people in the assembly. And we have a responsibility to use our gifts in the assembly. Look look at verse 18 again. In your Bibles, it says, but as it is, this is part of Paul's answer, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Perhaps you feel invisible or you think that your service is invisible. I want you to take heart because God specifically gifted and chose that you would have those gifts and that you would perform those ministry tasks in this local assembly. You should actually enjoy your gift and avoid this error of saying, well, you know, since that church doesn't really appreciate what I'm doing, I'm just going to remove myself from this opportunity. 
And may I encourage you, before you just decide to quit or to stop, talk with one of your pastors and explain how you're feeling. We would love to reassure you of your position here and help you find a valuable role to play in the body. May I say, we, we need people of all kinds of different gifts and abilities in the assembly here. We need warm and kind people gifted in hospitality to help us at our grace gathering get-togethers. We need gifted teachers to help us in our Bible studies, adult Bible studies and children's Bible studies. We, we need members who commit to visit other members who are shut in or physically unable to get out. I mean, we've got several people in hospitals and shut-in experiences. We need people who are gifted in showing mercy to go and to care for these people and to remind them of their value to the body of Jesus Christ. We need members who like physical work to help us keep the property looking nice and to keep things organized around here. I mean, there are trees to trim. There are some trees to actually even cut down. That'd be fun, right? Some of you are physically gifted to do so. Uh, We need help in those areas. We need people gifted in mission and evangelism to help set an example to the body of how to reach our neighborhoods, workplaces, and this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need people who commit to pray daily and fervently for our pastors and teachers and laborers as they minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need people gifted in music. We need people gifted in music, not to just sit back and think that their gifts are un, you know, they're not really helpful or necessary, but we need people gifted in music to sing well corporately in the body or to sing in the choir or some small group. We need people to play their instruments on Sundays and Wednesday nights. Right now, we need more families to help us with some setup for a conference that we've got coming up in a few weeks for takedown and, or setup and takedown. A counseling conference is coming up soon. We need greeters. We need security workers. We need children's workers. The point I want to make from this first paragraph is don't isolate yourselves. Don't think my gifts or skills are unimportant. Instead, invest your gifts in the church. It will be well worth the eternal riches that you receive, and the joy that you experience in knowing that God is using your gifts and your talents for the healthy function of Colonial Baptist Church. We must avoid the mentality that says, if my gifts are not valued or not valuable, I'm moving along. That is the error of the isolationist. He pulls himself away from the body. The second error I see in verses 21 through 26, and I call it the error of the elitist. The error of the elitist, describing verses 21 through 26, Paul tells this perspective from a a different, uh, uh, tells this passage from a different perspective where members degrade the worth, not of their own gifts, but of other people's gifts, and they exalt themselves over the body. Verses 21 through 26. So in these verses, Paul imagines parts of the body speaking directly to each other. In this paragraph, the one speaking understands himself or herself to be greater than the others in the body. That's why I call him an elitist. This is the difference between the two paragraphs. They're told from two different perspectives. The one who doesn't feel valuable and so removes himself. And then this paragraph is the one who who knows he's valuable 
And he's not going to amputate himself from the body. He or she will, will gladly amputate other people from the body who don't have sufficient gifts. So let's look in our Bibles at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the body, uh, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God so composed the body, I think he's talking about the church here, giving greater honor to that part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here in this section, Paul starts by describing the issue at hand in verses 21 and 22, and then he reminds the church of God's design, his plan for the body of Jesus Christ. So in verse 21, you see a problem, okay? And at times here in this part of the text, we'll have to just slow down a little bit to make sure we get it. Okay, so verse 21, there's a problem pictured in, ver- in, in this, this text. It says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Here, the eye and the head suggest to the hand and the feet that they no longer require their services, I think this is an especially fitting illustration. It's actually quite humorous if you take the time to stop and think about it. Okay, so the head and the eyes cannot accomplish anything of value, much of value, without hands and feet to act on the impulses and get something done. It's like the head turning to the hands and the feet. It says, yeah, I don't need you anymore. You're done. So this illustration is interesting. Richard Hayes, one commentator, explains this well. He says... The apparently higher members, the eyes and the head, cannot scorn the hands and the feet without whom they would have no power to act. Okay, so the eyes and the head can't look down at the feet and hands and say, I don't need you anymore. Hayes is saying, you have no power to act without them. You need them. To me, it seems that with this part of the analogy, Paul is confronting any elitist in Corinth who is claiming that their gifts made them independent or invincible. So perhaps the tongue speaker who claimed to speak with angelic languages looked at others and began boasting as if they were above others and said they didn't need anyone else in the body. They just need other tongue speakers. So Paul identifies in verse 21 the elitist error, making too much of our own gifts and being willing to gladly sacrifice anyone who's different. I want to give just a word of warning before we go to verse 22 here uh, that I think we can make from this passage an application for us, especially to those in the body who tend to receive a lot of praise because of their gifts. You know, there are certain functions or, or parts of the body that actually receive more honor or recognition earthly um, uh, from other people. And so I want to give a word of warning to those of you who are like that. Word of warning is that we must not allow ourselves to grow inflated because of the praise that's received or because of uh, our evaluation of our own gift or giftedness. 
I recently visited a church building where the pastor's likeness was found on banners, pamphlets, and magazines in the Welcome Center. His books and other various ministry accomplishments were found all around the Welcome Center where people would first come into the building. Now, I think you can tell by my guarded expression, perhaps, there's something about that that makes me extremely uncomfortable. There is perhaps a way to do this well and to do it tastefully, but I want to caution our church not to make too much out of any one person or any one particular gift set. And I've actually had someone tell me since I came to Colonial Baptist Church that if I want the church to grow, I would need to make much out of one of the pastors. He said, people must understand that you or some pastor in the church has something to offer that other pastors in the region don't have. My response to those sort of statements is usually twofold. One, first I say, if that's what it takes to grow, then I don't want to grow. Because I am not confident at all that that is the way in which God would want us to in any way grow, or that that type of growth would be honoring to the Lord. And then secondly, I say that I am confident that God can produce growth through the timeless, enduring, and powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is what will change lives. That's what's significant. Not any human person or any one area of giftedness. We must avoid the elitist error where we exalt the worth and value of our own gifts and we lift ourselves up above the body. That's the problem, verse 21. Paul's answer comes in verse 22. It's a simple answer. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Again, I think he's dealing with the person who's exalted himself, and Paul says, no, wait a second. The exact opposite is true. The weaker parts, the things that you would deem, the people you would deem as being weaker, they're, they're indispensable. The word indispensable here means urgent or necessary. So this answer in verse 22 uh, basically makes the point that there's no unimportant gift or person in the body of of Christ and that members uh, who might be counted, that we might count as insignificant are actually urgently needed for the health of the church. That leads us to an expansion of what Paul's point here is in verses 23 through 26, where he describes, I'm, I'm just calling this the design of God. Look with me at verse 23 in your Bible. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, and, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our unpresentable part, or which our presentable parts do not require. So here I want to look first at verses 23 and, and the first part of verse 24 and see what we can learn from this passage. Here in these verses, Paul's actually, 
he's talking about the way human beings inherently deal or treat their own body. So he starts this passage off with a discussion of our own physical bodies and how we treat them. Uh, through my study of the, of, of the verses, I actually wish that in the ESV, the, the last word that's translated modesty in verse 23 would be translated as something like presentability. Okay, now, that's actually not much of a word, but it helps convey Paul's thought here and capture the sense of what he's saying. So look at verse 20. And on, the, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, we give the greater honor. And on the unpresentable parts, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater uh, presentability, which our presentable parts do not require. I think what Paul's saying here is those parts of the body that don't need to be dressed up, we just present as is. It's like, so it's like our face, our eyes, no covering needed. We, we all have them, right? We, we all just present them. At least that's what men do. Okay, women do other things to the face and the eyes we won't even get into today. Okay, I've got three daughters. I know all this stuff. Okay, but he says you, you just present them. There are parts of the body that don't need to be dressed up. You simply just present them as is. There are other parts, those parts that are not so presentable, the belly button, for instance. We, what do we do? We, we adorn or cover it with clothing to make it more presentable. I think that's the point that Paul, Paul is trying to make. One scholar actually suggested that you translate it like this. Here's a better translation from a, a New Testament scholar I like. He said, our unpresentable parts have greater adornment to make them presentable. That's the concept. I told you, we have to slow down a little bit right here. This is a little harder, but we're a text church, right? We love the text. So this translation is, our unpresentable parts have greater adornment to make them more presentable. Okay? So that's just what we do by default. Paul then, in the middle of verse 24, takes that analogy and he changes the subject from the way human beings treat their body to the way God treats the church. So in the middle of verse 24 on, I think he's talking about God and the church. So look in your Bibles uh, at verse 24 in the middle of the verse. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So here in this point of the verse, again, Paul shifts his focus from the way we inherently treat our physical bodies to the way God treats the church. And the text says that God gives greater honor to the part that lacked it. You see that in your Bible? Okay, that, that phrase is a little bit difficult to understand as well. But keeping things parallel with what he just said about the physical body in the verse before, it appears that Paul is saying that God dresses up or makes presentable the members of the assembly who are most inherently lowly or who function in ways that don't receive much honor at all or recognition. In other words, God grants them, lowlier members, more honor than the ones who receive honor from others so that all parts of the body are considered worthy and equal. It's like some believers are 
just given more honor by human beings because of the position that they're in or the gifts that they have. And so then God comes along, he steps in, and he takes the lowlier members, and he gives them honor and recognition so that all parts of the body receive equal honor and recognition and distribution of the gifts. Now, unfortunately, and I have questions about this text that I don't think I'll ever get answered until heaven. Unfortunately, the text does not say how God gives honor to the person that we would think was lowly or doesn't receive much honor. It just says that he does. Okay, Paul just says it. And so, again, I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying that God steps in and he brings honor and recognition to the people who don't get much of the honor and recognition. And he's doing this for the elitists who's looking down and saying, look at them. Paul's saying, no, no, no. All on the same plane. In our text, however, in verse 25, we're given the purposes that God has for dressing up the lowly members of the body and giving them greater honor. Look at verse 25. Here are the two purposes. That, that there may be no division in the body. So the reason God steps in and he gives honor to the lowlier members of the assembly is so that we would not divide up following after different gifted people. Why? We're all gifted. There's no reason to be get, get behind one human individual because he's got like these extreme gifts. No, we're all gifted. We're all on the same plane. God does not desire that there would be any division in the body. This phrase, of course, reminds us of earlier in the book where, where the church was dividing up, following after different apostles, saying, I have Paul, I have Cephas, I have, I have Apollos, I like Apollos better, I have Christ. God specifically works to give honor to the lowlier ones among us in some way or another so that there would be no division. Then he's got another purpose in the end of verse 5. Matter of fact, you can see these purposes really clearly in the Bible. Can't you see the word that in the ESV? That there be no divisions in the body, that's number one. But that, that's number two, the members may have the same care for one another. I think with this phrase... Paul's basically saying so that we would extend the same sort of care to every person in the body, not just ourselves and the people who have the same gift sets as us or value the same sort of gifts, my gifts, like anyone else, though that we would treat everyone with the same amount of care. And we should do this because verse 26 says, if if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And... If one part of the body receives honor, we all rejoice together. I think Paul uses the body illustration here to demonstrate that we all need each other. Even those who receive honor or praise for their eloquence or giftedness need the full function of the body to be more than a single and powerless eyeball or head without any ability to act at all. So perhaps you find yourself here today ready to perform an amputation. Ready to cut yourself off from the body or from a ministry opportunity. You are discouraged. You're ready to cut yourself off. Paul's counsel to you is don't. The body needs you. Needs your gifts. Keep ministering. Even if you feel invincible, uh, invisible, keep ministering. God bestows honor to the weaker members. 
Perhaps you're ready to cut someone else off who does not fit or meet your expectations. Perhaps they don't value what, you're, what you value. Paul's counsel to you is don't. Don't you dare. The body needs them too much. The well-being of the church, the body of Christ, requires the healthy contribution of every member of this assembly. A few weeks ago I said, I think it would completely expand or or blow our minds if our body, if every member of our body was using their gifts effectively for the common good of the church. It would just be, we, we would be, by God's grace, an awesome church making a huge impact in this world. But let us consider how we might stir up one another, as Pastor Paul read this morning, to love and to good works by using the gifts that God has given to us for the common good of this church. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this text, two paragraphs, two perspectives. It probably hits everyone in the room in some way or another. Lord, there are perhaps some in this body who have been here for years, who made a decision years ago that they would quit ministering because they weren't valuable. Or perhaps because they weren't valued. Lord, I pray for any member or person who attends Colonial Baptist Church who just comes and leaves. Who doesn't obey what the scriptures say about using our gifts to stir up one another to love and good works. Lord, I pray for anyone who may have already, in some ways, amputated themselves from the body, let the body fend for themselves, not using their gifts in the assembly. I pray, Lord, you'd forgive them. I pray, Lord, that you would show them this, and I pray that they would get a new sense today of how they might use their gifts here at Colonial Baptist Church. And then, Lord, I pray for anyone among us who perhaps has grown a bit arrogant about their own type of gift or what they can bring to this body. And, Lord, they're arrogant to the place where they begin to demean other people who have different gifts and talents. Lord, I pray that you would forgive that person. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us how you reminded the elitist in Corinth that even the weaker members, from our perspective, we think they're weaker, even they are indispensable. They're absolutely necessary for the health of this body. Lord, may we not be quick to lop anyone off just because they're different. 
And I pray, dear Father, that your spirit would use this text in our lives to give her a greater appreciation for the diversity of the body of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.